Hello. Students of English are often given set texts, and one classic set text that many, many people will encounter is the Canterbury Tales. But unusually, this text is not very set. In fact, we don't really know what the original text of the Canterbury Tales was, or even if it's right to think of the Canterbury Tales as a text at root. Um, my guest this week is someone who can help us understand these questions. Uh, Peter Robinson is a professor of textual scholarship. Uh, he's perhaps best known to the world for his pioneering use of evolutionary technology, so the science of phylogenetics, and applying that to the manuscripts that we have of Canterbury Tales, which are a, a kind of heterogeneous bunch many different manuscripts with slightly different versions of the Canterbury Tales. Using the techniques of evolutionary biology, Peter has managed to create family trees um, of those manuscripts. So exactly the same um, science that allows us to trace how genes propagate through generations, allows us to see how versions of this text propagate through the hands of different scribes. So that's what Peter is perhaps best known for generally. However, to me, to me he is certainly best known as, as my dad. <laughs> so it's not a pure coincidence that we share uh, a second name. So it's a very great pleasure to speak to him this week. And I think I learn more about what he, he does for a living, uh, or has done indeed for the last uh, several decades, um, than I managed to glean uh, you know, from the kitchen table. Um, so... With that, um, we're going to learn about who Chaucer was, a man who led many lives. We're going to learn about textual scholarship, a discipline that looks at um, texts as texts, as physical documents. Um, and we're going to muse on several things. So I hope you enjoy. Hi, Peter Robinson. Welcome to Multiverses. Uh, thank you for joining me. I'm hoping to get into a question which I think it's very nicely related to the theme of this podcast. So multiverses evokes the idea of branching, but it also has a little pun in there around uh, poems and verses and so forth. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Canterbury Tales and how there's a textual tradition uh, in which we see some of this, some echoes of, of this kind of branching. I think before we get into the details of this, we probably need to r remind folks or inform folks, what was the Canterbury Tales? Uh, who was it written by? So perhaps we can start there. And then I think we'll get into some surprising applications of the science of genetics. Okay, so who was Chaucer? What's the Canterbury oh. Tales? Uh, right, who was Chaucer? Well, the multiverse thing is actually, I hadn't thought of it this way, but I think actually the multiverse is a really interesting way of approaching Chaucer because he lived multiple lives. And you could argue that each life was a multiple multiverse. One, a, a single multiverse or one universe or one verse or something like that. And he was a poet. So, yes, very neat that uh, verses gets into the, your title there, particularly for Chaucer. So who was he? Well, uh, one answer is that he was uh, a member of the uh, merchant aristocracy. Uh, he was His father sold wines to the court of Edward II and became very prosperous as a result. So he was brought up within the aristocracy. That's one life. Second life, he was a diplomat. 
He was an extraordinarily gifted man, it's quite clear. He learnt language, languages easily. It seems that he spoke French, Italian and Spanish uh, fluently and, and wrote also very good poetry in French as well as English. And he might have written some poetry even in Italian, though we, may, we don't have any instances of that. But he certainly read Italian. So that's the second Chaucer. I think the, uh, the person of language is the educated man who'd read very widely. Third Chaucer, which comes from the second Chaucer, um, was that he was a diplomat. He's and a, a highly tru trusted and favoured member of the circle around Richard II, uh, particularly, and uh, to agree also uh, close to the, many of the court, not so much with Edward II himself, but many of the courtiers of Edward II and his brothers particularly and his sons, well, so especially his sons, uh, which was most famous as uh, the Duke of Lancaster and John of Gaunt, uh, Chaucer was very close to them. Um, so he was. Uh, so going through all those things, yes, he was, he was many, many th different things. Uh, and this was Chaucer around, um, so just to, just to make sure the relevance of this will become clear later. So this was around sort of 14th century, right, that he was yeah. living. Yeah. Yeah, the key dates is he was born around 1340 and died in 1400, which spanned a particularly turbulent period in England's particularly turbulent, tur turbulent history as there was effectively several revolutions took place uh, during Chaucer's maturity. And Chaucer had a central place uh, in both revolutions. So he was neither, so though he was not directly affected or hurt or damaged, or advantaged by those revolutions, but he lived through them. So mm -hmm. the historical storms that went on in Chaucer's life, his closeness to the court, to some of the most powerful people in England, all of those things became a factor in his poetry, um, which is, of course, what we remember him by. Though probably if you'd asked somebody in the 1390s what they thought of Chaucer, they said, oh, he's a very important guy. You know, he's got, he does this. He looks after the Tower of London. He looks after all the king's uh, properties along the Thames. He arranges tournaments. Uh, he has to pay off all the workmen who work on all the Tower. They probably wouldn't have thought of him as a poet. They would have thought of him as more like a civil servant, member of the aristocracy, a man of influence, an influencer. Mm -hmm. so, that, so, so there are many different Chaucer's. Uh, and that is actually, I think, very much reflected in his poetry, which is quite extraordinarily varied. And particularly in the work that we all know Chaucer by, the Canterbury Tales, because the Canterbury Tales is really many works in one. It's um, some way to think of it. It's actually 24 long poems put together. Uh, Chaucer's original plan was to write 120 or so. He actually wrote 24, which is not bad, pretty substantial. It's 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 a poem... Made of many poems, I, I suppose, perhaps, as you say, reflecting all the, the variety in, in Chaucer's life and, and interests. And as we've established, Chaucer was living in the 14th century. So this is this is before movable type printing. And this puts us in a time where the technology of writing was completely different to it is now. And I, I don't even know if it's correct to, to think of Chaucer as a, as a writer. I mean, did he actually, when he came up with the Canterbury Tales, did he, would he have physically penned it or would he have sort of thought it through in his, his head and, and read it out aloud? Do we know how that worked? Right. Well, you raised a whole bunch of questions there. And again, 
following through the multiverse idea, there are multiple instances of ways of thinking of Chaucer as an author. And probably, and some of the ideas of what we think of as an author don't really apply in the Middle Ages. Um, As you said, we don't have print. So we don't have the whole publication kind of uh, chain, which which we're used to. Uh, Chaucer did not go to somebody like Bloomsbury Press and say, would you publish this? Uh, And then they publish it, print and whatever like that. So we're living in a manuscript culture, uh, and that's, that means that we are living also in an age when Chaucer's first readers are, will be people he knows personally. And we also got the question of what, of which you've rather well put out there, is that did he actually write it? How did people experience it? We know that people didn't buy Canterbury Tales in a book as you do now. They got how do they get it? And in fact, what we have is that uh, a very great deal of evidence that uh, texts were commonly disseminated by performance or reading aloud. And there's uh, not a clear division between reading aloud and performance either. So books were such rare objects. I mean, they're extraordinarily expensive. You know, a manuscript book would rep- a single manuscript book would represent several years of labor. So think of a manuscript book as being worth several hundred thousand dollars. That's mm. really the kind of a, compared to the average wage of a penny a day, uh, a manuscript book will be 30 shillings or probably at least three pounds or so, which is, what is that, 720 pennies. That's two years' work for your labourer. So uh, books were, and even after readership became white, quite widespread, even in the early ages of print, books were still very expensive, but much more so, of course, in the in the 14th century when uh, literacy rates in England were probably around about 25% of the population could read, which meant that the great majority of the population had to get knowledge from word of mouth. And mm-hmm. I think one of the things that we've become very convinced about, very clear about, is that what we have in the manuscripts of the Canterbury Tales isn't anything like a fixed text to put a sort of a, in a kind of it's it's more complicated even than that but it's a, but you cannot believe you cannot think of this as being the author writes this out in a fair copy in a fair hand and then it goes through a process and it's printed and proofs come back to the author and they go back to the printer and then the printer prints it there isn't anything like that there is there's some analogies with it but it's but in fact one of the key factors here is, I think, the production of the poetry for an audience who encountered it first through either recitation or being read to from books. So, so I think that takes quite a bit to consider how different is your experience of a text when you are not your habit is not to read. The, mm-hmm. the, now, for centuries, the default way of acquiring knowledge is to get it from a book. That was not yeah. true in the Middle Ages, even when books were available and even when people had access to books. Still, most of the time, the knowledge would come through your ears into your brain that way. Yeah. It, it's interesting. We, we were just speaking just ahead of um, starting this call about Audible and how actually, in some ways, the, the pendulum might be swinging back a little bit. And, and here we are on a podcast as well with hopefully some, some knowledge passing through uh, listeners' ears. But I guess, you know, 
with Audible in particular, it's still within that paradigm of, you know, a fair copy, uh, an edited, produced thing that then, you know, there is a single unit, it it gets played back. Okay, there might be different versions with different actors, but it, it it's not in the same idea of performance where presumably each performance might be slightly different. I, I guess what comes to my mind is perhaps the closest thing that we have currently is something like stand-up comedy where performers will be iterating their routines and we never think about even most people would would never dream of reading a stand-up comedian's transcript right that's just not that's not fun right and and what does it even mean to have such a transcript when when we know that each performance is going to is going to vary and perhaps that's hmm. displaying more variation than 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 there was in as applied to the canterbury tales but maybe that's putting us in a a better place to think about it right i, I think the analogy to stand-up comedy is actually really valuable uh, I think, or, and rap and hip hop and the like. And there's actually a, a rather a really brilliant performer, uh, Barbara Brinkman. I don't know if you've come across any of his work uh, with Chaucer. And you should get him on your podcast talking about yeah. performance in Chaucer and medieval texts. But, uh, and that I think that's that kind of performance. And stand up isn't far off, too. That, you know, stand up comedians don't completely improvise at all. They prepare, and then what comes out might differ from uh, one performance to another, but there is a sort of core about it. And then it's, I think you come to analogies, something like the, uh, the, the, you know, the theories of, of how oral tradition, oral formulaic literature developed. So I think if you come to some sort of cross of oral formula, formula, formulation of literature, as has been very well established with analysis of Homer and the like, that uh, the Homeric poets constructed each performance by bring, by having in their head an enormous large arsenal of phrases and words, which they brought out slightly differently each time. And you know, there's an immense amount of study about this. Uh, Celtic tale, the uh, Celtic uh, tale tellers, uh, who were captured in the early 20th century, telling folk tales in Ireland, it's the same sort of process. So it's a different kind of dynamic altogether. But I think what's uh, central to Chaucer is that a performance quality of the work. Uh, we know there's one famous frontispiece uh, in a, a manuscript in Trinity College, Cambridge, of Chaucer apparently reading to court. Or there's a book on the lectern in front of him, but he appears not to be reading it. He appears to be performing. And we've had some... Uh, considerable success ourselves in reenacting how these performances might have looked. I had a superb student a few years ago who was capable who memorized hundreds of lines, thousands of lines of the Canterbury Tales and then then performed it, uh, I think, very, very effectively. And there are so many signs in the Canterbury Tales that uh, so much of its dialogue, its speech, and uh, it's clearly that whoever performed this did the voices, didn't just present a, a reading, but actually it was a performance. And I think it's the nearest analogy I can think of. It's, it's much closer to Shakespeare's plays in that sense. And the records we have of Shakespeare's plays are records of performance. And that realisation has actually transformed the editing of Shakespeare in the last 20, 30 years and the production of Shakespeare's with it. And I think we're seeing the same sort of thing happening uh, with the Canterbury Tales, particularly in that it's 
Chaucer appears to be moving much more towards an idea of one-man performance, uh, like a stand-up, with multiple voices. Um, and of course, what we don't have is any videos of Chaucer doing it. We don't have a script. What we have is a bunch of texts, which is yeah. another problem. But that's right. I, I guess I mean, what we have distorts our view of things, but it's, it's, it's all we have available, right? Apart from, you know, I guess these clues as to how the performances would have worked. And But it's interesting, as I, I suspect most people would think of the Canterbury Tales primarily as, as a text, but it seems like maybe the best way of us thinking about it is a performance. But But nonetheless, that performance hasn't been passed down to us <laughs> at some point it was uh, put on ice as it were and what we have left is is a text or indeed many different texts and i this is where i think uh your work with the canterbury tales project comes in so perhaps you can if you take us through you know what are the fragments of the canterbury tales which which did make it through through the right. five centuries to us and uh, the mystery that they left. Okay, yes. Right, this is sort of focusing on what do we actually have? What we actually have is 84 manuscripts uh, written in multiple hands over about a period of around about 100 years, up to 50, from between 1400, perhaps 1398, and mm -hmm. 1500 when we get the first print editions of Chaucer. So those 84 manuscripts, um, and indeed the, the four earliest print editions of Chaucer, are the best testimony we have to what words Chaucer might have actually spoken in front of the court, reciting his latest work, The Canterbury Tales, as I think probably that's, I'm pretty sure that's actually what happened. There's, there's every sign that uh, Chaucer prepared the text for that kind of recitation, and then it was written down after that. Mm -hmm. So we have 84 manuscripts, and not, not one of these manuscripts has on it something saying, this is my work, I am Geoffrey Chaucer, and I write this work out by hand, in my own word, in my own hand, this is my text, I've established it. Actually, other medieval authors actually did that. Even in the, the age before culture, uh, Petrarch, for example, great Italian poet, went to considerable trouble to control precisely the exact words of his text. Chaucer actually doesn't seem to have cared very much, which is slightly uh, upsetting. And again, a very nice analogy with Shakespeare. It's probably not true that Shakespeare simply didn't care about print either. I think he probably did. But Chaucer and Shakespeare are both on the kind of a, that kind of side of creativity, which says, you know, I'm creating this thing, I'm making this thing, I enjoy making it, people enjoy listening to it. I don't care that much about getting it into print or in Chaucer's case, kind of, uh, defined manuscript form. A kind of Creative Commons, uh, early CC 2.0 advocate, maybe, right? <laughs> well, happy, happy for his work to be remixed. It could be. And again, on the multiverse, the thing of who Chaucer was. He was not a professional poet. He didn't depend for his livelihood on his mm. poetry. Other uh, poets, actually in the manuscript world, the medieval world, there were uh, quite, not commonly I would say, but there were certainly uh, uh, a number of individual poets throughout Europe and authors who lived by what they actually wrote. Um, Maccaccio, um, maybe Dante to a degree. 
certainly um, John Gower, Chaucer's contemporary in England, but Chaucer wasn't. He was a civil servant, very powerful uh, civil servant, you know, the, the equivalent of a sort of major, of a member of the cabinet. Uh, and he wrote poetry in his spare time, as it were. So that's this is, a, this is a factor that he didn't have a, there was no, he didn't have a felt need to create his own oeuvre, as it were, and, and to be the custodian of it and to supervise its going out into the world. We do actually happen to know quite a lot about how Chaucer, uh, where he was when he was writing the poetry, what conditions of life he was living in, uh, physically even the exact place down to the millimetre where, where he lived while he was writing much of his poetry in Aldate in London. Uh, he lived above the Tower Gate of Aldate because he was acting as he was collector of customs for the wool trade in England which doesn't sound like very much, except you think that one third of the king's income came from the taxes levied by Geoffrey Chaucer. Not bad, which makes him a pretty significant figure just in his own right for that. But because he wasn't professional, that has a lot of effect on the way in which the Canterbury Tales has come to us. Uh, it seems that Chaucer didn't, uh, and he died, he was 60 years old when he died, which is considerably beyond the average lifespan of most people. But it appears that he died quite suddenly and, some, and maybe unexpectedly. There's even a uh, theory put out by my, my uh, one-time colleague and friend, uh, Terry Jones, that, that Geoffrey Chaucer was actually murdered. And there is actually some evidence for that, for the support that he was on the wrong side of the new King of England in the fourth and may have been murdered. But in any event, Chaucer never put the Canterbury Tales into an order, a, a considerable order himself. The best expression of this is what's called the messy desk theory. That when Chaucer died, he left behind a messy desk with all this stuff all over it. And these poor people, his literary executors, his friends who knew about the Canterbury Tales, loved the Canterbury Tales, which become, even before his death, pretty famous. They had to try and put together, piece together what Chaucer left behind him. And we're carrying on that process of trying to piece together what Geoffrey Chaucer left behind him. You're still cleaning up the desk. So, and on this desk we have was it 84 manuscripts or so? None of them, as you say, carrying Chaucer's official stamp of approval, mm. and perhaps none of them even I don't know, possibly never even seen by Chaucer. We don't know. Yeah. What is the process, right? How do we? What? What? Firstly, what are we trying to find from these manuscripts? Well, what we would like to find is something as close to, to my mind, what Chaucer would have performed when, say, somewhere in 1389, he came back to court in London. Richard uh, II, the King of England, who had just regained power himself by basically a counter coup against his relatives who'd taken power off him. So Richard II took power back. And one of his first acts was to bring Chaucer back. This is probably June 1389. And we believe that in right. just that period, Chaucer was, had spent the last four years beginning to write the Canterbury Tales between 1385 and 1389, or 1386 probably, 1389. And the rationale for that was that in 1386, Chaucer suddenly lost his powerful as collector of customs for the Port of London, and the, or rather he resigned it. And the reason he resigned it is pretty clearly there was a coup against Richard II, which, and the and the his Richard II's 
vicious, nasty, horrible relatives took over, basically, and proceeded on a campaign of slaughter, of uh, judicial murder, of as many of, Charles, of Richard II's uh, friends, colleagues, tutors, etc., uh, associates as they could manage. And Chaucer got out of London because of that. So Chaucer came back to London in 1389, and we, in our reconstruction of this, he presented the Canterbury Tales as a series of performances. He wrote the Canterbury Tales out, and then, but the core was the performances. And then the manuscripts are the, kind of the record of those performances, if you like. They're, a kind of in it, they're like a snapshot of what was going through Chaucer's mind at one particular moment, which might have then underlined underlay a, a particular performance. We have, in fact, several manuscripts dating from very close to Chaucer's own lifetime including one which we think may have been started uh, within his own lifetime, and, um, and several others which were written, uh, and a couple of major manuscripts which were written by a person who we think was Chaucer's scribe for a period of some 25 years or so. And there's, uh, there's been a brilliant piece of literary detective work by uh, Lynn Mooney. I don't know if you remember uh, Lynn Mooney, who visited us at various times back in the past. Uh, and she established that, uh, I think fairly reasonably, I think pretty soundly, that a guy called Adam Pinkhurst worked for Geoffrey Chaucer as a scribe in the Customs House from 1375 to about 1385, and then worked for Chaucer again around 1390 to 1400. And that he copied, that the first, the oldest copies we have of the Canterbury Tales, or the oldest single copy we have of the Canterbury Tales, was written by Adam Pinkhurst, Chaucer's associate and scribe. And mm -hmm. that uh, so, and we have that manuscript. It's in the National Library of Wales, the Hengard manuscript. So that's the kind of most precious single manuscript we have. You know that this may well have been supervised by Chaucer. That part of his writing may have been supervised by Chaucer himself. At the very least, the manuscript was put together by somebody who knew Chaucer's writings and had access to all of all of the documents that Chaucer had left behind, and himself was actually responsible for writing out those documents. So the Hengate manuscript is written by this scribe very close to Geoffrey Chaucer himself. Okay, so I, I think I I want to just check on some some things to make sure that we've we've not lost anyone, myself included. So we have the um, we have these, these these manuscripts which are almost like recordings, possibly of these um, performances in a way, um, and perhaps uh, you know supervised by Chaucer after the fact. Um, mm -hmm. We have this Hangard manuscript. How do we know that it's the oldest of of, of the bunch? And I, actually, before we get to that, I, I want to maybe point out something that may or may not be obvious, but just that the reason we care about figuring out which of these manuscripts is the one closest to those uh, performances is that the manuscripts differ, right? They're not exact. You know, we, we have 84 manuscripts, which are not just physically different objects. They have different words written on them. They have different letters. They have different, you know, right. they have very slightly different versions of the Canterbury Tales. And so what we're interested in, I suppose, is, is finding which of these was closest to the one that was read out in, in the court, or maybe not read out, but performed in the court. Right. Yep, that's 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 it. That's exactly so. Um, the 80, we have one manuscript probably written towards his lifetime. We have maybe another half dozen manuscripts written within ten years of his death, 
and then from 1420, 1410 to 1420, we get more and more manuscripts. Uh, as we come closer to print, the number of manuscripts being copied dramatically increases in preparation, as it were, for print. So around 1460, 1470, we're getting 20, 30 manuscripts written, and they all differ from each other. And as you say, we could, and many scholars have just said, let's just take one manuscript, the Hengert manuscript, and another manuscript written by the same scribe, and we could allow, allow them to completely define the text of the Canterbury Tales. But we could ignore all the others. But actually, um, we decided some time ago that we didn't want to do that. We wanted to look at all the manuscripts of the Canterbury Tales. And one of the reasons for that is it's possible that a much later manuscript might actually preserve a very early version. Uh, and that is actually the case. We think that there, there were at least two. There, we have one manuscript written around 1450 or so, which we think is a copy of a manuscript, another manuscript written by the same scribe as the guy who wrote the Hengen manuscript, probably around about 1400. But it's not a copy of that manuscript. So this is actually very important. We have this much later manuscript as a check on the earlier manuscript. So when, when they differ, then we have an interesting puzzle. Uh, and there are various places in the text where the Hengert manuscript has a mistake. It simply doesn't make sense. Or there's a gap. There's hundreds of lines missing. There's a whole tale missing, in fact. So in the, and there are questions. The order of the tales in the Hengert manuscript appears to be not as intended by its author. It appears to be rather random, at some points, pretty random. So we, we don't get all the answers from one manuscript. And that means we have to look at a whole lot of them, which means looking at all 84, which is kind of fun. So how does that process work? You have 84 manuscripts uh, coming from a, a larger population of manuscripts, which you don't have, right, which are, which are lost. Absolutely. But you're trying to find which of these, of the the extant ones, is, I guess, again, closest to what would have been performed. But among all this mess of, you know, here's some stuff which looks very suspect. This just doesn't make sense in the Hengert manuscript. Uh, you know, perhaps some quite obvious things which are pointing to the fact that Hengert, though the oldest, may not be the best. Well, I mean... What clues or what is the process for trying to piece things together? And instead of just, I guess, re relying on scholarly intuition, try yeah. to flesh out, right? right? Right. What do we take from each of these manuscripts? Yeah. Well, there are uh, two parts of the answer. One part of the answer is to look at each manuscript very closely itself to discover what one can about when it was written above all things, where it was written, who owned it, where it came from, etc. And those, those, uh, those are critical questions because, as you said, we're uh, able to establish that the Hengen manuscript is probably written around 13, 1400 because the handwriting is very distinctive. And one can compare that, the doc that document with other documents written at the same time and you can see hand handwriting changing and you can see the particular handwriting in that manuscript is can date it quite reliably within about 10 to 20 years or so. And there's a whole science of handwriting analysis. Maybe it's an art. Maybe it's a form of witchcraft. You know, we're not quite sure what it is really. But, and there are 
But it's it's unquestionably true that you can compare the manuscripts. Compare date documents you don't know the dates of with documents that you do know the dates of, and then you can get a good idea of the age or the particular document. There are also many other hints, things like fashions change in the, the, the skins are actually used, they change the way a manuscript is set out, that changes also. So there are a lot of hints within the manuscript as to its age above all, and sometimes also its place. Um, you can also use the spelling of the manuscripts, the dialects and so forth, to give you a sense of where the manuscript came from. That's one factor. The second factor is, which I think is what you're driving at here, is comparing the actual words of the text and then trying to figure out from the way in which the words differ how the manuscripts relate to each other. Uh, and that's been the, our particular, my particular area of concentration over the last uh, 30 or so years, that uh, we have been uh, developing new ways of finding out how manuscripts are related to each other based on the analysis of the words they have in common and don't have in common. So, um, which is, I think, where you were driving it when you mentioned phylogenetics uh, earlier on, which is probably my signal, most, you know, the contribution most people would associate me with, I think, in terms of study of the Canterbury Tales, is that uh, myself and a few other people way back in the 1990s discovered that uh, one could take different, the different manuscripts, one could transcribe their text into electronic form. So basically, produce word files or something like that of each manuscript, recording the actual text re line by line, word by word, in each manuscript. You can then compare those transcriptions, those representations of the text of each manuscript, and you can create a record of how the manuscripts actually differ. So the first word of the Canterbury Tales is the first line, uh, one that I've read with a short sort. Now, uh, many manuscripts have... Some manuscripts uh, have Avril, some manuscripts have April. okay? So which manuscripts have Avril, which manuscripts have April? And it goes on from that. You know, we, we find that same pattern of happening. Um, beginning of the Reeves tale, we're told that there's somebody who's living in Cambridge. In other manuscripts, say Canterbridge. Other manuscripts, Canterbury. So there's, there's that kind of difference. Scribes made mistakes. And scribes introduce changes, so the manuscripts differ because of those changes. What we're trying, what a large part of our work has been, is to try to discover how the manuscripts relate to each other, based on how they differ from each other. What family are there? Family relationships? Can we use those family relationships to explore how the text develops over the one hundred or so years and through those eighty-four manuscripts? And this is why. I guess this is where phylogenetics comes in, because, as you say, there's a family relationship, and, and phylogenetics is the is the study of, I guess, the inheritance of of traits. And we can think of these. What's key here is that the scribes introduce changes that then mm -hmm. get copied by other scribes. Right. There's a possibility that they get reversed, which doesn't happen very often in 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 genetics um certainly like uh, you just get branches dying out <laughs> if if something if a trait that's acquired is 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 very unpalatable or on or you know unfit here i can imagine you do get cases where changes are reversed but that's perhaps un unlikely and, mm -hmm. and if it never happens at all then you 
then you get something which I guess is a, you know, a tree in the sense of of, of graph theory, where you have, um, or perhaps a forest, if you have different among these eighty four manuscripts, you, you might have multiple uh, trees growing, as it were, where the nodes of of the tree, each node is is a manuscript, and each manuscripts can give rise to other nodes or a, an other node at least, which is a copy of that manuscript, which might introduce some some changes and typically will. And there's sort of this kind of flow. It, it's, it's a perfect branching structure. There's no kind of a cycle of natures and things. It is, it is a great example of a tree. And, and using that, you can, um, and, and this makes it sound very easy, you know, you can run some analysis to to figure out, okay, well, what does this this tree look like given all the changes that occur? I, I guess one key problem is I, I looked this up just before this call. There's a lot of ways that you can arrange 84 nodes into a into yeah. a tree structure. And there's probably even more ways that you can arrange them into a forest structure. I think there's a formula called Cayley's formula. I don't know if you've come across this, but it, the, the formula is uh, I think it's. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna look it up so I don't get it wrong. Is it two to the? Here we go. N to the power of n minus two, where n is your number of nodes. So for eighty four, uh, that works out as uh, basically 84. ten to the power of one hundred and fifty eight, which is no, ten, ten, ten with one hundred and fifty eight zeros. It's yeah. a it's a big number. Yeah, no, you, you've, hit, uh, you've traversed a whole bunch of uh, questions there. But first of all, uh, I, um, I know my f- kind of breakthrough moment with all this work came th- just over 30 years ago now when I started working on this sort of material and, we, and I hadn't heard of phylogenetics when I began this whole process. But it turns out that the history of the analysis of text and the history of the analysis of organisms are actually very parallel and actually interlock. Uh, and the key moments in both are the mid-19th century, when, of course, Darwin writes The Origin of Species and with the immortal line about uh, descent with modification as being the model that explains the entire development of every living thing on the planet and probably possibly, indeed, in the, very likely in the universe, in fact. Uh, but at the same time that Darwin was developing that theory of the relationship between organisms, textual scholars, uh, most famously and a German scholar called Karl Lachmann, were working on texts like the Bible, texts like the uh, Middle High German uh, Nibelungen Lied and uh, uh, Arthurian romances and so forth. Uh, and they were discovering that texts could be arranged into families on the basis of characteristics on the basis of particular readings that they shared and didn't share. And Darwin had exactly the same perception when it came to organisms. So the roots of both textual scholarship, the sort of work I do, and what biologists do, is actually based on a single perception of descent with modification, using the Darwin phrase once more. So there's kind of an, an interesting history there of that kind of the way in which the two disciplines have reinforced and informed each other over the last hundred years, biology has far outstripped textual scholarship in terms of the amount of resources that goes into it and the amount of development and the amount of thinking that comes with it, which has actually been great for us textual scholars because I'm now able, 
and other of my colleagues were able to use the insights that have come from biology to inform and improve our own understanding of how text traditions and indeed any kind of situation where change happens through descent with modification, how we can think about those things. But certainly we, um, going back to the late 1980s, uh, 1990s, when I first started doing this work, uh, we just, um, I, uh, the breakthrough moment, I think, became when I was working on some old Norse texts, which I was actually edited for my doctorate. And I had information about, I've developed a whole series of files which relate, showed exactly how the manuscripts related to each other. Uh, and I put out a challenge on the internet, offering to buy lunch to anybody who could take those files and figure out how the manuscripts related to each other. Now, the kind of the wonderful thing about this case was that these forty-six or so old Norse manuscripts had we had a, we knew exactly how about one third of them were actually related to each other because we had the scribes saying, "I copied this manuscript, and I copied this manuscript, and I copied this manuscript." So sixteen manuscripts out of forty-six, we knew how they're related, and I created a using pen and paper and like four by six index cards and so forth like that, while you were just a child sleeping in the next room, uh, I figured out how these manuscripts related. And I, I created a tree or a directed graph or however you would like to term it, but a tree which said here is one family, here is another family, and here is another family. Very neat, very nice. So my challenge was I would give someone, I had by that point, 1990s, I had this data in electronic form, in digital form. And so I said, well, I can give you this data in digital form as a matrix, basically a matrix of relationships. And you, if you can create a uh, stemmer out of it, I'll buy you lunch. And the guy who won that prize was the only person, in fact, out of seven people to try it, I think, to use phylogenetic analysis, which is the first time I'd heard of it. And the results were simply astonishing. It worked to a degree that I, I looked at the guy, I couldn't believe that he'd got it so right. Uh, and... Uh, and at that point, it became really clear that the analogies between what we saw of as analogies between the way in which textual traditions develop and the way in which taxa, species, flora, fauna, they develop, it's not an analogy, an analogy at all. It's fundamentally the same process, which is descent with modification, which is exactly what you said, that uh, a scribe copies, and then a copy, copies are made, the scribe introduces some errors, and the, or some innovations, and those innovations are then copied into the descendants, and that forms a node in the tree, and the, and the descendants of the node form a family. And that applies whether you're working with manuscripts or earthworms or kangaroos or platypodoi or whatever like that. Exactly the same model holds. And other parts of the model also hold. Among them, the point you mentioned about a rare reversal, uh, that once an innovation has been introduced, it's rare to go back. Rare, but it actually happened in both species and in, uh, uh, in manuscripts, in text traditions also. And we discovered the analogy, uh, well, the identity is so close that it's not just that we can recreate family trees out of it, but we have exactly the same problems, the same problems of reticulation, uh, genetic recombination, uh, changes of exemplar, scribe. A scribe combines two manuscripts to form a new manuscript that contains a reading from different branches. Turns out the species do the same damn thing. You know, there are species which actually are particularly uh, small organisms, a single, um, small, 
uncomplex organisms, which actually will swap in and out uh, sections of DNA. And they will grab bits of the DNA from another organism and put and import it. So you have really a, exactly the same phenomena happening in both traditions, which is why we've now, after 30 years of actually working on this, we're really just beginning to understand how what a representation of a text tradition using these tools gives us. And it's actually much more complicated than we'd expected. I was looking for simple answers 30 years ago. It turns out the answer gets much more complicated. But it turns out when I talk to biologists, they say, well, that's the way it is. <laughs> the same thing happens in biology. You don't have you know, these beautiful trees. You, 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 they put out there, the reptiles over there, the mammals over there, birds over there, man down here, monkeys elsewhere like that. There's an awful, you know, there are fundamental simplifications of, an ex of extremely complex developments. Right. Reality is, is hard to represent. And that, that's fascinating. I didn't realize that um, there was this this long tradition, it seems, of, of, of textual scholars and biologists talking to one another, perhaps being inspired by one another. But it wasn't until, you know, the 90s and, and you had this insight that, that actually the technology was directly applied um, from the field of biology onto sexual scholarship. And this wasn't a case of inspiration, but actually application of, of uh, across the disciplines. So maybe maybe walk us through how you know from that point. So you, you got this kind of proof of proof that this works with with Norse manuscripts, um, where you already had quite a lot of uh, information about the the ordering of the set. What what then happens with the you know was it very simple with the Canterbury Tales project? Could you just say okay, oh we've sold it here, let's. Here, here are the files for the Canterbury Tales. Just do the same thing, or um, is it more complicated than that? Well, it is much more complicated than that. Precisely for exactly the same reason, when you start pressing biologists to say, "Well, what was the genetic composition of the the ultimate ancestor of mankind? Uh, you know, who was he, and what did he look like?" They can't give you precise examples because when you when they they can they can point you towards the areas where the original, the ancestor of us all is likely to have been in Africa, likely to have been 60,000 60, or so years before BC, but no existing fossil corresponds exactly to whoever that person was. And that's a very similar situation that we find with the manuscripts. Maybe the thing we would love to achieve, just as abolitists would like to be able to say, this was Eve, we'd like to be able to say, this was the original text. We have got the form of words, which explains it, but you simply cannot get the, to reach that degree of certainty. And for many, many reasons, there are many reasons for that. One of the reasons is we've become acutely aware of is that when you look at one of these um, tree-like, we don't actually use trees, we use things which look more like bushes uh, to represent them. And on the, on the bushes, there's a branch of manuscripts over there. They appear to be a family. There's another branch of manuscripts over there. That appears to be a family. But there's a whole lot of manuscripts where we don't fight, we can't say this is simply a family. Um, it's a little bit like a way I think about this is you have a group of people sitting in a hall. I actually did this in a doctoral exam in Finland a, a couple of months ago. And I, I took the hall and said, okay, here, uh, here is a candidate's family sitting together. You know, they're all sitting together. They're related to each other. 
but in the same hall you have other people sitting. There are another group of people who are members of the Faculty of, of Theology at the University of Helsinki who are also sitting closely together, but they're not related to each other. But they have a relationship of an affinity. They have a shared interest, but not a shared genetic relationship. And then there are people who are simply sitting in the back of the hall. <laughs> That's they're just sitting in the back of the hall and they're sitting in the same area, but they're not actually related to one another. They're not actually, they don't have a common interest. And there are people who just don't belong to any other, any other group. And they don't, they're not members of people in the back of the hall. They're not, they're not sitting, they're not part of the family. They're not part of the faculty of philosophy, of, of religion at, at the University of Helsinki. So they look like a group, but they're not a group. And that's the kind of problem which I think both biologists and ourselves face, that uh, these very powerful pieces of software can take an enormous quantities of data and they can sort, they can establish with high degrees of certainty the best representation of the data if what you're looking for is a kind of tree-like representation. They'll give you something with a tree-like representation. But it doesn't actually mean that all the groupings in all the clusters in that uh, thing there are actually genetic relationships. And that's a, and that's a complex, that, and, and um, I've, come, I've come to think this as being, you think of these as more like maps, or more like, in fact, what I, the analogy I just used, a snapshot of people sitting in, a group, in an area and grouping them together uh, in an almost, but not quite an arbitrary way. The group is not arbitrary. There are, there are reasons behind it. So, so when it comes down to actually determining what Chaucer might have actually written, what these, this kind of information does for us is it, it tells us if that a particular reading, uh, which we think might have been original, this is what the distribution was. It's here and it's here and it's here. And we can use that distribution to reinforce or undermine our confidence in that being an original reading. There is a classic case, in fact, uh, in the biblical texts, which I've also done a lot of work, as you know, with New Testament scholars, where the problem is many times bigger. There's 5,000 manuscripts, not 80. So it's, and they're written in multiple languages and it's over several thousand years. So it's, a, it's, it's, the, it's just unimaginably large, the problem there. Uh, but one finds the characteristic of, uh, there is a very coherent text of the, New, the Greek New Testament, which dates from Byzantium, almost a thousand years after Christ. So that text cannot be authentic in the sense that it's highly unlikely that any of the readings were characteristic of that text were present in the text from the first century, where we think Jesus' words might actually have been present. So how do you allow that to determine? But, but there are some, a very few cases where you might think, well, actually, I think that reading might be original. It could be original. So really what it's doing is it's complicating the argument <laughs> yet further. Where we thought we might have got certainty from being able to apply what look like scientific methods. You thought this is beautiful. We're going to produce these beautiful trees and it's going to finish all the arguments forever. It turned out to be quite the reverse. We just started a whole forest fire full of new arguments. As a result, those questions like, what do these representations actually mean? Probably the primary question. Another way of looking at it, I don't know if you've seen, there's a, a whole very nice kind of a distinction being made recently with the use of um, statistics to predict as against statistics to explain. Statistical methods, quantitative methods of all kinds. And 
are we looking for an explanation or a prediction in something like this? I think we're actually looking for a representation. So what does that do for your average reader of the Canterbury Tales? Uh, I think actually the average reader of the Canterbury Tales needs to be aware of all the degrees of uncertainty surrounding any particular word in the... So, so it seems like the we don't get given the answer on a plate. We end up with a very complicated picture. And I think that might be disappointing to some folks, but I, I want to go back to something which you mentioned earlier, which is that or the impression I got was that you felt there was value in all these manuscripts and that the game isn't just about kind of using technology as a ladder to, to get to the one that's closest to, you know, in Chaucer's case, uh, some performances in the, in the new Testament, I guess, getting to the, I don't know, the disciples themselves who penned them. The game isn't just building that ladder and then kicking it away once you've reached the top, but it's actually, Hey, this ladder is pretty interesting, right? This, this whole, this whole tree of relationships that we don't entirely understand, you know, is part of the tradition of the text, right? It's it's not just about that one um, piece. And perhaps that's particularly, I guess, one one way I'm kind of passing this in my mind is, is, is going back to this idea of, of Chaucer being someone who loved the performance and, and seemed to be quite laissez-faire about the copyright side of things, and maybe quite, you know, one. I'd be interested in your opinion on this. What would have Chaucer felt about you know all these manuscripts? Might he have found that some of them were improvements, or would he have been furious when he found that Avril had been changed to April? Well, there's a lot of parts of that question. Uh, it's quite clear that Chaucer, I don't think, would have thought of his text as being definitive. It's pretty clear that Chaucer's mode of creation, he didn't revise in the way that, by way of going through and changing one word here, one word there. He would produce a whole new version. And that's, we have that example of that in one of his poems where there are two versions, and it's simply like he just started again. He didn't just go through and change, he just produced a whole new version of it. So uh, I think he would have been pretty puzzled at the idea of a, sing, a single fixed text, and he would have thought that that was pretty much a second best to the experience of sitting in there and hearing him perform. And I would agree. Same thing with Shakespeare, of course, also, that you want to be there with, at the performance and at all the performances. You don't want just the dry words on the page. So I think Chaucer would have been very sympathetic as well. So I think if Chaucer would have liked a great number of things about the modern world, I think he would have loved social media. <laughs> he would have loved... Uh, and he would love Netflix and the sort of scope that that, that kind of long-form serialization gives to stories. And I think he would have been very appreciative of the way in which we're trying to bring people closer to his time and his way of thinking and way of thinking about books and way of thinking about authorship by moving away from the notion that there is a single fixed text which is bound within a book, you open it and you read it silently. Uh, the experience of Chaucer's original manuscripts is very far from that. And I think that uh, our, uh, what our work does, I think, is uh, removes 
the the idea of the ladder which creates the text, and then you kick the ladder away. Instead, the text is created as you read it on the basis of all of the information that you have about it. And one of the, the great things about the digital world is you can give people access to all that information. We can give people images of every page of every manuscript. They can see from themselves exactly uh, how the, where the words are on the manuscript and how they differ from manuscript to manuscript. And then they can follow through the processes of phylogenetics and so forth. And they can find themselves very quickly coming up against the same sort of questions that we have, which is... Uh, really uh, doing away entirely with the idea there is one text. There is not one text. There are many, many texts. They link together in a, in, a, in a multitude of very complex ways. And understanding the text is, to quite a degree, uh, engaging with those multiverses or multi-texts, uh, if you like, of the Canterbury Tales and of any or the Greek New Testament or Dante or any writer whose work survives in many different versions. Brilliant. So I, I think that that rounds the, the idea very nicely. We get back to the multiverses theme. <laughs> and and we're again at this this idea of perhaps the, the best way to approach texts is as a plurality, right? Instead of a fixed thing. So I think that's a, a lovely note to end on. We come back to branching, a branching <laughs> right. of verses. Not just texts, as they these these are poems. Do you have? I am tempted to ask a final question. As if we've talked a little bit about authorial intention, um, and this mm. is completely out of my expertise and perhaps out of yours as well. But one thing that's caught my eye recently is people discussing Chat GPT and uh, yeah. generative text models as an author and. You know, there's questions here around, well, are these things conscious? And uh, I think most experts agree that they're not. But what's <laughs> interesting to me is that already people are assuming this language that, that we're calling them authors, right? That that's, that seems to be very common. And we're, and we're, we're ascribing a very intentional, well, let's say, we're ascribing an agency just through that terminology mm. because if one is an mm. author, one is an author of one's actions, one, one, one thinks of the word authorized. Mm. This is complete tangent to the discussion we've had, but I can't um, hold my back, self back from answering the question. Well, actually, I don't think it's uh, at all a tangent. I think the questions of what is an author and what is the author's relationship to Firstly, the text, and secondly, and maybe even most critically to other people who are going to read that text or are going to experience that text. I think it's become a, a truism of recent textual scholarship that this is far more complex than the traditional idea of the author as being the lonely person in a garret who produces in isolation his work of genius and then gives it to the world. Um, generations of textual scholarship have thoroughly demolished that. Authors do not work on their own. They work with other people. They encounter other people. They encounter particularly the people who are engaged in the production of it. And then every text has an immense afterlife. When out, it moves out of the author's control, it becomes part of the whole world. And it becomes, in fact, it's turned into film, it's turned into plays, it's, it's translated, it's adapted, etc., etc. So this it becomes part of the cultural marketplace. 
So I think uh, chat GPT, if you look at it in those terms, is it's just another form of authorship. We've had many right. forms of authorship. We have you know, books produced by multiple people nowadays. Commonly, that's the case. And ChatGPT actually is basically it's text produced by mass text, by algorithms working on immense bodies of information. Not that dissimilar to a committee of people creating a, a kind of Wikipedia article, which, not coincidentally, most ChatGPT things that I see look very like Wikipedia articles. Often that's because they are Wikipedia articles, which have been kind of, you know, sort of dredged up and joined together with encyclopedias, newspapers, and whatever like that to produce this kind of melange of fairly second-rate material, mostly. So yeah, I, there's nothing really new under the sun here, and I think actually, yeah, one could see the kind of ways in which thinking about text has text has been dematerialized, broken to pieces. Relationships between the relationship between author and text and and society and audience and publisher has become so. We've become so aware of all the contingencies which shape that. We're ready for Chat GPT. It's just a yet another yeah. complication along the way. So don't worry, ChatGPT. There's going to be scholars who are armed <laughs> and ready to to the task well, of of understanding your well, rather Jeffrey, odd outburst. Let's say. I have to say, I'm being in the university, our university, and I think pretty much every university in the world is terrified of ChatGPT. Because, right. Yeah. You know what? Be how? What's going to happen when the students get hold of it? The students have already got hold of it. Yeah. What do we do? And, and, and I guess you say, I mean, as you say, I think uh, I think it's interesting this idea of the cultural marketplace that that you bring up, and maybe what we're saying when we say ChatGPT authored this, we're not actually implying that here is this machine which which is which has all the traits of an author, you know, that kind of agency, but it yeah. is actually it's some kind of melange of authors. It's almost like right. out of the Chaucer tradition, you get all this. A kind of branching of of different mm. folks producing different versions of that text it's almost right. the reverse of that you get many texts flowing in right. and then chat gbt you know is right. given a prompt and extracts something from that but really the true authors of it are the people who put all those things in including the people who created the prompt and the people who created the code but yes. uh, yeah. a lot of work is being done by wikipedia I mean, even Absolutely. the Canterbury Tales, I'm sure, is in there at some place. We can probably That's ask right. ChatGPT right. to, to, to write something in the style of Geoffrey Chaucer. Um, well, it could be I'm another sure scribe. I'm sure he could, but in fact, and what you would end up with is something which looks rather like the late manuscripts of the Canterbury Tales, which are a kind of, um, or one might also compare to the uh, late versions of the Greek New Testament too, where the text achieves a kind of mediocre stability. And that's right. a sort of, uh, it's, it's really quite a common phenomenon in the, the development of texts, uh, particularly the Canterbury Tales, where um, you have an individual Chaucer, uh, author who is sometimes quite difficult to understand because his ideas are sometimes very subtle. And that tends to get lost. That subtlety, that originality, some of the things that make Chaucer and Chaucerian texts really worth studying, they can be removed in the manuscripts uh, as the tradition develops. And you can end up with something which was a good deal more, and you do end up, in fact, with the Canterbury Tales as printed in text editions up to the 18th century or the 19th century, were based on 
the rather poor late manuscripts and a rather poor print edition produced by William Caxton. And as a result, Chaucer's meter, for example, was horribly messed up. And people for year, for generations thought, said Chaucer doesn't have any, he said, he's got no metrical ear. And that's because the manuscripts that were being used, the late editions that people were reading, just butchered the meter because they didn't understand it at all. And so one could say that this is where ChatGPT starts, is where manuscript traditions end, in a kind of the, a bland mediocrity, uh, which is basically an accumulation of non-wisdom. <laughs> because uh, <laughs> without wanting to be elitist about it at all, but um, the things which tend to get, as we know, Wikipedia articles tend to become bland because sharply held opinions are dis- disliked by other people. So there's a tendency mm-hmm. to remove contentious appear contentious views uh, and to achieve a kind of bland, a media a, a standard view, as it were, and that's where ChatGPT. This stuff has even ChatGPT. It looks so like that. Um, yeah. On the on the one hand, we have this. Oh, but on the other hand, we have that. You know, there's this little. You can see how ChatGPT has accumulated all the opinions on this side, and then it says, oh, here's the opinions on that side, and then there's a third range of opinions there. And then there are, there's this point of view here, and then it summarizes. It does a very good job of topic-by-topic topic summarizing, basically, drawing together a piece of uh, a consensus of information from multiple sources. When it can't find a consensus, it separates and creates two consensus and presents them as alternative points of view. That's the way the, um, that the algorithms work. That's how that's how they address all this data and draw it all together. So it's, uh, I guess, we're all learning how to, un- and I think maybe we're learning something from that, which is how the human brain puts things together as well, too. And the virtue of something like ChatGPT is it gives us a better sense of what originality actually means, and that might might be a bad thing. Yeah, that's right. I, I think I've, I, I think originality is something more than just. A great blender of, of of different things together that kind of washes out all the individual flavors is is perhaps what we're we're getting at. I yeah. do think it's interesting how people are actually using. I've heard of examples with Dali of people saying, "Okay, I love Dali. I'm an artist, not because it's helping me produce art, because it's helping me realize like what very bland, generic. You know, what are the first things that would come to mind if someone right. wanted to, you know, create a picture of a uh, you know, flying horse or something. And that's not what I want to do. I want to do something original. I want to do something that is not in the canon. Well, exactly. Yeah, that's that's, that's one area of looking at it, yeah. I, I think there's a whole... I, I, I believe you're going to have some 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 people from AI coming onto your multiverses to talk about that. So I'll be interested to hear what they, what they say about that. From medievalist perspective, part of multi-chat looks very like the uh, the the immense stress put on authority in the medieval world, which meant knowing a huge amount of very formalized kind of knowledge, exactly what Aquinas said on this point, but oh, what did Scotus say about that, and what did Peter Lombard say about that? Then, so you knew this kind of like series of nuggets of knowledge which you had in your head and which you could then draw out and arrange as needed to on any particular argument. And ChatGPT looks like a continuation of the way in which the medieval world processed knowledge. 
uh, which might be an interesting point line for somebody to take up. As a... well, that, that certainly seems like a very original point to end on, and I, I'm sure one <laughs> that that chat GPT itself would find novel. Well, yeah. <laughs> brilliant. Thanks so much. Uh, I don't know whether to call you. Uh, it, it feels very formal to call you Pisa, but uh, very <laughs> informal to call you Dad. So, but uh, yeah. I was told in Helsinki that I'm a god and a legend. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not properly claiming those titles for myself. I'm not quite sure the foundation of this. Oh, uh, and last week, uh, last year, I was also called the Godfather in Italy, Il Padrino. So I've, I've now got a T-shirt with Il Padrino on it just to, to let people know who I am. Very good. Put me to the all right, uh, Don Don Peter, <laughs> thank All you right. for uh, thank you for your time. Okay, great.